Yeah, well, uh, very nice to meet you. I'm really glad to be here. And um, I, I'll try to read you, and you can try to read me, and we'll make it, make it work, because I want, I want you to have fun, and I want you to enjoy being together and being away from home and having some time to really think about the gospel. The, the uh, topic that Susan gave me was to how to, how to, be, how to live a missional life. And, uh, and so I'm going to try to aim at what, is it, what does it look like to live missionally in the Bay Area. And uh, I live in the Bay Area. I live in the North Bay over the Golden Gate Bridge in Marin County. And uh, living missionally is all I got, to be honest with you. There's no, people don't come to church in Marin County unless they got a problem. And, uh, and that's a great thing to meet people when they have a problem. But the only, what we have is to live out of the joy of who we are and who God has made us in Christ. And so uh, essentially what I want to do over the next, I'm going to do four sessions. I want to tell you a story. And I don't know about you, but I love stories. Uh, I like to listen to stories. I like to watch stories. I like to go to movies. I like to uh, tell stories. I, I like to hear uh, uh, comedians tell stories. I, I like stories. My kids like stories. Uh, my family likes stories. We were watching Broadchurch this uh, week. I don't know if anybody has looked at the, has watched that series, Broadchurch. It's a BBC series. It's a whodunit kind of thing. And, and uh, my wife and I watched it over about six weeks. And my kids watched it in one week because they just love stories. And uh, the gospel at the very heart of uh, what it is, it's a story. It's a story. It's a magnificent story. It's a magnificent story that we're invited into. And if I could do anything for you this week, I want to remind you of the story. And I want to invite you into the story. And I want you to see your place in the story. I want you to be able to tell your story. Uh, My wife uh, couldn't come with me this uh, weekend because we have teenage boys. And uh, we don't like to leave teenage boys home alone. And uh, they have girlfriends and all that sort of stuff. And they play football. And they have football practice this weekend. And so she's not here. But I'm here. And what I was, the reason I'm telling you all that is that uh, it's very rare that anybody gets to tell their story. It was, I think I was 39 years old before anybody ever asked me to tell my story. And uh, I want you to know that I would love to hear your story. If you would like to take a walk, I will listen to your story. And if you would like to hear some about my story, I'd be happy to tell you my story. But one of the most precious and beautiful gifts that you can do for one another, and this is a great weekend to do it, is to listen to your neighbor's story, listen to a friend's story, and to really know them. There's, there's something about being known and telling your story. And so uh, what I want you to know is that I know something about your story. If you are in Christ, I know something about your story. And in fact, I know a lot about your story, and I want to tell you about something about your story and about the story that you find yourself in. Um, I want to tell you uh, a a six-act play, and I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Um, A couple of weeks ago, right before I went on vacation, a large, uh, well-known uh, group sent me an email asking me if I would go to, uh, or if I would come and bring my church to their evangelism training. And uh, I, I like this group, and I have respect for this group, but I said no. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to take my church there. And the main reason I don't want to take the, my, didn't want to take my church there is because what they were going to do is teach us a bunch of propositions. And... Um, I know a lot of propositions, but propositions generally don't change people's hearts. 
What changes people's hearts is a story. And uh, a lot of times when you go to an evangelism training seminar, uh, they'll talk about 1 Peter uh, 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 3.15. Always be prepared uh, to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have and do it with gentleness and respect. And that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful passage. Um, it's a biblical passage. It's, a, it's something that we should all uh, be, be able to do. And yet, one of the things that's most common among evangelism trainings, training sessions is that they forget the first part of uh, 1 Peter 3.15. The first part of, 3, 5, first part of 1 Peter 3.15, easy for me to say, isn't it, is, says this. It says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. The, the reason I say that is that 1 Peter 3.15 um, assumes somebody has a question. And so often in evangelism training, um, we talk people into questions. And we talk people into propositions. And what the heart of what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter 3.15 is a life of joy. A life of authenticity a life of humility, a life that is provocative. You see, when you live out of the joy of who you are in Christ, when you live out of the joy of being called into the story, when you live an authentic and real life, people ask questions. And the point that I want to say is, is that the, uh, the point that, that, I, that I knew that I didn't want my, my, my church involved with this group is, is that I want our people to live provocative lives. I want us to be a provocative church, not provocative in being out there with, uh, you know, wild and crazy statements. I want us to be provocative with our authenticity. I want us to be provocative with our joy. I want us to be provocative because we're the kind of church who would listen to somebody's story if it took two hours. We're the kind of church who would, who would be with somebody when they're hurting. We're, we want to live a provocative life. And so, if we're going to talk about being about the mission of Christ in the world in the Bay Area, we have to set apart Christ as Lord in our lives. And hopefully over time, each of us will be growing more and more in, in Christ in such a way that our lives will be provocative. That when we, when we, when we leave a dinner party, the, the, guests, the, the host will say, won't say, boy, was that person arrogant. Boy, did he want to talk about himself the whole time. Rather, they might say something like this. I found their authenticity just so inviting. That, that couple listened to us the whole time. We talked the whole time, and they listened, and they, boy, they seemed, they seemed interested in, what, in our lives. You know, they're real about the problems that they have. They're not, they're not fake, strap on a, a smile and try to play nice. They actually want to talk about real things. What I'm trying to say is that the joy of who we are in Christ actually is the way that we become missional. Being our, our most authentic us is the way that we begin to be about the mission of Christ in the world. It's my hope that your humility, that your joy, your authenticity is what's provocative in San Jose. And I will tell you that joy and humility and authenticity the ability to say I'm sorry, 
the ability to, to be humble, to, 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 to die more and more to yourself, is a provocative way of living in San Jose. It's a provocative way of living in San Francisco, and it's a provocative way of living in Marin County. And so what I hope for you is I hope that your humility and, and uh, that, that comes from your union with Christ will be on display with your neighbors. And maybe somebody says, Rod, you're putting pressure on us, and then that's not what I want to do. What I want to do is free you. What I want to do is free you to be the only you that you can be, to be the only you that God made you to be, that God made you in such a special way, but to be the only you, to be the most authentic you that you can be now. You see, I want you to live missionally. Sue Song charged me with this subject for this weekend, and as you live in the security and in the joy and in the hope of the and an authenticity of the good news that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Do you, do you live day to day in the hope and in the humility and in the authenticity and in the joy of the fact that Jesus is reigning right now? Is that the primary motivating factor for how you live? Or is it my current comfort? I have to call myself back into, into, uh, into reality often because so often... My comfort or my lack of comfort is what is driving my mood, not who I am in Christ. And so my hope is that I can help you and help you be, be an instrument of the Holy Spirit this weekend that, that reminds you of the hope that you have and reminds you not only just of the hope that you have, of the mission you've been called in. You have a very, very important job. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how experienced you are. You actually have a mission-critical job. There's not, no, there's not anybody in here who hasn't been called into the mission of Christ. Do you know what the mission of Christ is? Do you know what I'm talking about? Does that seem like foreign language to you? I want to try to share with you what the mission of Christ is and, and, and call you and remind you that you're called into this. It's sort of like, do you remember the old, um, uh, what was the, the name of the show? Uh, it, it was Mission Impossible. If you choose to accept your mission, this, you know, it would give you this mission. If you choose to accept this, and the, the recording will explode. Well, you've been called. Whether you choose to accept is really up to you. But what your, where your greatest joy will come is when you join this mission. So my hope this weekend is that I'm an instrument of the Holy Spirit to renew and to restore your hope, to renew and to restore your joy, to renew and restore, frankly, your fascination with the person of Christ, to, to renew your fascination with the story of redemption and to see your place in it. I want the Holy Spirit to give you confidence, and I want the Holy Spirit to give you humility. You, honestly, uh, I don't know any of you very much personally, but I, I do know this about you. You have no business being called to this high, high calling. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, maybe that's too bold, maybe it's not, but it's true. You have no business, and yet you've been called, and you've been commissioned, and you're not, you, you're not lacking one thing. If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. You lack for not one thing in order to be about the mission of Christ just where you are. Jesus knows all your stuff. 
Jesus has called you. Jesus can use you right where you are. I hope that gives you confidence. That's not about coming up the grade. Of course, he wants to mold you more and more into the image of a son, and he may call you to special offices, but he's called each of you now, and you have all that you need. And I'm, I'm convinced that we understand our mission better when we understand the story better. That we, we, what, we, what we're involved in is a grand, grand story. There's a grand narrative that goes on in the Bible. I don't know how uh, long you've studied the Bible. I don't know what your um, experiences with the Bible. Uh, I've only been a Christian for about 22 years. I became a Christian, um, uh, well, I guess it's about 32 years now. I, I became a, no, 22 years. I became a Christian when I was 30, and I'm 52 right now. And, um, and I didn't know the story. And I'm going to ta- talk about that a little bit tomorrow. But I, I have this massive passion that people know the story. Um, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that uh, tomorrow. Um, as we gather this weekend, I want to use, sort of mo- use a motif of a six-act play. I don't know if anybody likes to go to the theater. I, I love the theater. I, when I was a sophomore in college, I got to spend uh, two semesters in London, and uh, one of my classes was theater, and I basically was a theater critic for seven months, and I probably went to somewhere on the order of 35 shows when I was there, and I absolutely loved it. I told you I love stories, and uh, when you walk into a theater, especially a nice theater, you'll get something that's uh, called a playbill. Has anybody ever gotten a playbill or gone to a show in New York? And it talks about, it, the, the playbill kind of gives you the, it gives you the sort of the, the broad overview. It tells you the number of scenes that there are in the story and who the actors are and all that sort of stuff. And so what I want this weekend is I want you to know that actually you're part of a play. You're part of a six-act play. And in fact, you have a job. You're going to be the star of Act 5. Now, I don't want you to get nervous because it's an improv. It's not, uh, you don't have to memorize any lines. But let me ask you this. If you were to play the starring role or you were to play a, an important role in a six-act play and, and your primary role is in Act 5, what would you want to know? What would be important to you as, as you began to prepare for Act 5. You want a Tony, right? I mean, a Tony is at stake. You're a, you're a Tony-winning actor. And what would, you want to know? what would you want to know? You'd want to know the story. You'd probably, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm starring in Act 5 and I'm going for the Tony, I want, to, I, want to, I want to just, I want to come in and I want to cohere with the rest of the story, don't I? It'd be very important for me to know Acts 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. It'd be, it'd be really helpful to know Acts 6 if I could know it. And since we're in a play, we can know Acts 6. It's already been written. The story's been written. And what I want to suggest to you is that a missional life in the Bay Area is a life that recognizes that I'm an actor in Act 5. But I'm not just an actor. I have a part in Act 5. I'm actually, my life is to play my part, my unique part, the only part that was ever written for you happens actually in Act 5 of the play. And so I wonder, this, I wonder maybe, I don't know, we, I don't know if you like show of hands and those sorts of things, but could you tell the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? How would you tell it? Have let me maybe a show of hands. Has anybody ever told the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation 
in the form of a six-act play or a five-act play. Has anybody ever done that? Anybody ever heard somebody done that? Okay, what I'm hoping is, I'm going to give you hooks this week, okay? I want somebody to be able to tell the story of, from Genesis to Revelation, and I think I'm going to be able to, I'm, I think I'm going to be able to help at least half of you if, you, if you hang with me, to be able to tell the grand story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in the form of a six-act play. Six things. It's pretty easy to remember six things. Seven things are in a phone number, right? We can remember six things easily. And so we're going to tell the story of the six-act play as we go. The scriptures tell a grand story of which we're a part. And this is a long way of getting there. But I want you to have joy in your story. This is, you're on. You're going to be on. When we leave here Sunday, Act 5 will be in mid... I mean, Act 5 actually is happening right now, but I'm going to hold off for you until Sunday. But Sunday, when we leave, the last words I'm going to say are, go. Your Act 5 people, go and be the Act 5 people. And so uh, I'm, going to t- I'm going to try to tell you this story. I hope, I, I hope I've not taken too long to, to grab your attention. I, I wanted to use one book of the Bible to tell the six-act play. It's hard to find one book in which you, which you do that, but I'm going to use Acts of the Apostles. And so Acts of the Apostles and a six-act play motif, sometimes the language will get a little bit, I'm going to try to be very clear that I'm talking about the grand story versus this particular chapter of Acts of the Apostles, the story that uh, Dr. Luke gives us in the, in the scriptures. But I'm going to try to use Acts of the Apostles. And the reason I want to use Acts of the Apostles is, I don't know if anybody's read Acts of the Apostles recently, but so many times, it's so fun to read Acts, and so many times in Acts of the Apostles, when somebody is called on to talk about the hope that they have, they tell the story. They, they never say, well, because Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. They don't just give me a one-word answer. Have you, have you read recently when Stephen got stoned? Uh, Stephen, Steve, the, stoning, the story about Stephen being stoned is like two, two whole uh, chapters long. It's, it's forever that, that Stephen takes to get to it. He tells the whole story of Israel. I was going to use that one, but it's even... I thought, I'm going to read too much if I, if I tell that one. But several times, Peter tells the story. In fact, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, pe- pe- they say, what's going on? And Peter tells the story from the beginning to the end. He tells the story. And, and, and a number of times before the Sanhedrin, a number of times Paul has to tell the story. And they tell the story. They don't under, you can't understand who Jesus is outside of the context of this grand story. And so what I want to do this morning, or excuse me, this, this evening, is to start with chapters 1, 2, and 3, or Acts 1, 2, and 3. So we're going to have a, a six-act play. I'm going to try to cover three acts from, from Genesis 1 to the end of the Old Testament tonight, okay? I can't, you know, I mean, it's impossible to do that, especially within the next 20 minutes. Um, or, or 65 minutes? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but I'm going to try to tell that story, and I want to give you some handles to tell that story. And I, want to, I hope I intrigue you so that you'll go in and you'll read uh, Acts of the Apostles. You'll read the story of uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. You'll read Stephen Stoning. But what I want to start with is, is um, Acts chapter 13. And I'm going to read for you Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 13 through 25. If you have a Bible, uh, Susan told me that you guys use the ESV version most often. And so... Uh, you can just listen along or you want to do it on your um, iPhone or whatever you have there. Hear the word of God, Acts 13. So this is, um, 
well, you'll be able to pick it up. From, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to uh, Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to the city in Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading of the law and of the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for, uh, for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with a mighty power. He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to the people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, and the, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his task, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me me pray for us as we consider his word here. Lord, we are grateful for for this, your word. And we ask that you'd come now and that you'd illumine our hearts and our minds, that we might see you more for who you are, more beautiful, and more believable than when we came into this place this evening. And Lord, as we come into this place, I know that we come from many different backgrounds and many different uh, places around the world, really. Uh, We come from many different cultural perspectives and many different age groups. Uh, Lord, we're a varied lot, and yet... We do share uh, some things in common, and one of them is this, I know, is that there's, as we come in this evening, there's not one of us in this room, not one who has it all together. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, you wouldn't give us seven new rules to live by. What you'd do is you'd pour out your spirit and your grace, and you'd pour out in abundance, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so our passage, in our passage, we find Paul in the middle of the first missionary journey, and he's invited to speak at uh, the synagogue. Uh, Now, if you know who Paul is, Paul had been Saul, and Saul had been going around killing Christians, and uh, he had participated in the stoning of Stephen. He held held their jackets as they were doing it, and Paul had a a massive life change uh, when he interacted with Jesus. He literally got thrown off his horse, and and he is like the Jew of Jews. And uh, now he's going into these synagogues, and he's telling the story of Israel, and he's telling how it is fulfilled in the person of Christ. And some places it went well, and other places it didn't go so well. He got kicked out of a lot of places. He got, he got thrown out. He got stoned himself. And so, uh, so as we begin to read this, I want to tell you that the Acts 1 and 2 of the great story are sort of implied here. I, was, I really thought hard about whether or not I should just read out of Genesis 
uh, 1 and 2 for Act 1 and Genesis 3 for Act, uh, Act 2. And I, and I thought, no, I'm going to just tell you about Genesis 1 and 2 and Genesis 3 as Act 1 and 2. But it's, it's assumed here. When, when, uh, when Paul makes reference to the God of the people of Israel... There's something very special about that God. It's not just any God. The God of the people of Israel is the God who, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. Who, who, uh, who uh, the, the, the book of Genesis, or the Hebrew way of saying it is in the beginning, the book of in the beginning is all about uh, the God who made the world and all that is in it. In fact, in Acts chapter uh, 17, verse 22, when Paul's in the Areopagus, uh, speaking, he talks about the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And so I guess what I'm trying to say to you is that while I didn't want to read right out of Genesis, what I'm telling you is that Paul is implying this as he's talking. This The God of the people of Israel is the God of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. And so what I'm saying is that our passage assumes Act 1 in the six-act play. And here we go. Here's Act 1 in the six-act play. In the, the, the primary action of Act 1 in the six-act play is that God speaks. God speaks and the limitless galaxies leapt into existence. God made the world and he made it good. In fact, he made the world and it was very good. Uh, This God of the people of Israel is the God who made heaven and earth. And he brought order where there was chaos. And, uh, And he did it out of his graciousness. He, did, he didn't need to do it. He just did it. He did it because he wanted to share the glory of the Father and the Son of the Spirit who has existed from eternity past. The creation is, is a gift to us all. The creation is a, is a gift of the love of God to all creation. It is, it, is, it is a joyful, it's like the volcano of joy overflowing between the, the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit is, is the act of creation. And so he creates the world and all that is in it and uh, like an artist, he creates the, the whole earth. But he, and, he, and he sort of, if, he, if you think of an artist, she might take her canvas and she might sketch out the whole of what she's going to do with a, pen, with a pencil. But in this one little place, in this, and we'll call it Eden, in this one little place in Eden, the, the, it, we're told in the at first act of the six-act play, in this one little place, in, in this place that he calls Eden, which means sort of a paradise, he, she, she brings, or God the Father, brings oil to canvas. He brings color, and he brings texture, and he brings beauty. And in the garden, he puts the human person. Now, he, he, it's, the, the garden is teeming with life, and we can go through all of that. And I don't want to go through all of that because I, I only have a limited amount of time. But the point that I want to say is that, that God at the pinnacle of his creation, creates the human person, male and female, in his image. The only, you know, the the giraffe is beautiful, the kangaroo is beautiful, the lion is beautiful, the the, the mountains are beautiful, and yet none of those... None of those bear the image of the creator. Only the human person bears the image of the creator. And so in in this particular place called Eden, the human person is given... Dominion. The per- human person is given stewardship. Actually, the human person is put in this garden to enjoy one another and to enjoy the creation, but also is given a job. And that's one of the things that I think that many of us don't think about when we think about Act 1 and we think about the Bible, is that from the very beginning, uh, we've been put to work. 
Work is not a post-fall reality. Work is a pre-fall reality. And maybe that's over the head of, of some of us. But sometimes people think, well, the earth fell, and so then came work. No, that's exactly wrong. It's exactly wrong. The, the earth was created, and the human person was created in the, as, in the centerpiece of that, as the pinnacle of that creation, to multiply and to exercise stewardship, to multiply and have dominion, to exercise stewardship. And so the human person was given a job. And in fact, our calling goes back to that very first calling. To, to ext- and and in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, it says that he was to tend the garden and to, and, to, and to make it expand. We were to extend Eden to the ends of the earth. I hope that maybe that picture gives you an idea. As you think of this little bit of the, of, the, of the painting is done, and what we were to do is through multiplication and through our stewardship is to finish the painting. The, the call of the human person and the, and the privilege that God gave us was that we were to be the instruments through which the glory of God was made known to the rest of the creation. Can you imagine such a, such a huge privilege given to anybody in all of creation, but it was given to the human person? And so Act 1 is this magnificent and glorious act that God made all things, and he, got, and he gave the human person his image, and, and, and he gave the human person a job to do. So it's very, very important that the, that the, the glory... Uh, would be made known to the ends of the earth uh, as the water covers the sea through the agency of the human person. Do you realize that about yourself? I'll talk about this tomorrow too, but oftentimes I hear people say, well, I'm only human. Like, that's one of the biggest pet peeves I have in all of life when somebody says to me, I'm only human, right? Well, what they're saying to me is a, is a complete misunderstanding of who they are. What they should say, and I'm not, you know, listen, I'm just a little on my hobby horse, but what they should say is I'm, I'm sinful or I'm rebellion, because if you really understood who the human person was, you would never say that, right? Our goal, our, our, our calling is to be human. When God makes all things new, guess what we'll be? Human. We won't be angels. We won't be non-corporeal beings. We'll be fully human persons. You see, it's the glory of God to be a human being. Do you realize that? That God has called us to that. So the, the agency of the human person is ultra important. It's plan A from eternity past. And so we end act one with a great story that God has made the world. God has given us this place, Eden. He's given the human person this, his, his image and he's given them fellowship with one another, male and female. They're to multiply. They're to exercise stewardship. They're to take Eden and extend to the ends of the earth. What better job could we have? Right? It's got to take at least to the book of Numbers or, or the prophets before we screw that up, doesn't it? No. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3, we're already into it. So, the, so Act 2 is, is a rather painful act. Act 2 of the great story, so we've already got Act 1. Act 2 of the great story is known as the fall. If, if, if you've been around the, the Bible or you've been around theology, sometimes people use that expression, the fall, but it's the, it's the collapse it's the, it's the conflict that comes into the great story. Every story that's worth telling has conflict in it. It's not, you know, uh, the, the grand stories of redemption, something has to go wrong before the redemption can come. And act two is a very simple one. The human person decides that God has given him a raw deal, that God has given her a raw deal. And so it's not just the, the taking of a fruit or the disobeying. It's utter 
rebellion and chaos against the God who made you and, and graciously gave you this mission. And so in Act 2 of the play, the human person rebels against God. The human person, let me just say it, spits in the face of God. Sin is treason against God. Any, anybody in their right mind who's a government official who grants citizenship to somebody, and then they, that, that citizen turns around, spits in their face, and, and uh, bombs their buildings, is going to take away their citizenship, or is going to, they're going to be disassociated with. And the fact of the matter is, is that when the earth fell, when the human person turned against God, death came into the world. Death and destruction, uh, you might say, all hell broke loose. When we don't appreciate uh, the grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ, nine times out of ten, we don't appreciate the extent of the fall. Can you imagine a greater gift than to be given life? Can you imagine a greater gift than to be given the job of being the ambassador for the creator God of the universe? Can you imagine a, a, a better job than to extend Eden to the ends of the earth? And yet our first, our forefathers and mothers stuck their finger in God's eye and said, not good enough. Now, how bad are they? But here's, here's the problem, is that we've adopted that. Every time we sin, we're committing treason against God. We're telling God, you don't have our best interests. You may have created us, but we know better. And so a deep conflict comes in in, in, act, in, in act two of the six-act play. It's, it's real trouble. Death comes into the world where the world was teeming with life. Where I got my sports center app here. The Braves won, if anybody's interested. <laughs> Sorry about that. I don't know how to turn that down. Um, anyway, uh, Act 2 is hor- horrible. And Act 2 has a long, long tail. I read today... Uh, of the theology of rape practiced by ISIS, of how they use rape as a, as a weapon of war. Now, it's not them Muslims that's the problem, okay? It's our human person. We, our idolatry is just as bad. What I'm telling you is that you can't get much worse. It's not just that things go bump in the night. It's that we have holocausts and genocides it's that we have bullying and rape. We have uh, shame building. We have incest. We have Friends, the earth fell. And so Act 2 also assumed here in, 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 what, in what Paul's talking about. All that Paul is talking about assumes this good God who made the earth and then death coming into the world. And so Act 2 ends horribly. Death and destruction and separation from God. 
See, God, God loves his creation too much to tolerate people who abuse it. It's not that God is a bully and wants to punish everybody for making mistakes. It's that God loves, God has a jealous love for you. And when somebody comes against you, he doesn't treat it lightly. Some of you have had uh, occasions where people have come against you in, in the most awful ways. And maybe this weekend's a, a time to tell your story and, and to cry and to have somebody weep with you about that. But l- let me tell you something. It will not go unpunished. God is jealous for your wholeness. God is jealous that you're treated with the respect and the dignity that you are made with. And anybody who comes against you in that will have to give an account for it. I hope that makes you happy. Now the problem is that unfortunately we've also been not only victims but perpetrators of that. So it puts us in quite a pickle, doesn't it? As we close chapter, or as we close Act 2, is it, there's quite a pickle that the human person has been given this magnificent job to do, and uh, they spit in God's eye. And, and the tale and the destruction that comes is awful and horrendous and, and heartbreaking. And we're still experiencing it even in our day. But gratefully, Act 3 begins with a promise. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Genesis 3.15. It's, it's not the most clear, but let me paraphrase it for you. Is God says it's not going to end like this. this. This is not the way it goes. The Lord will reign, and I will restore. And the power behind the power of death will be, will be put to death. Now, that's Rod's paraphrase. It's, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing a little bit more out of that theologically, but read, read Genesis 3.15. We'll have a chance to talk about it. But it begins with a promise, a promise of restoration, a promise of hope that will come through the agency of a human person. In fact, there will be one that comes from the seed of Eve, from the seed of the, from the, seed of the human person, the very first human person woman, one who bears human flesh, will be the one who brings restoration. Have you ever wondered why it's so important when we talk about the humanity of Jesus? Why it's so important? Because from plan A from eternity past was that through the agency of the human person, the the knowledge of the glory of God will be known as the waters cover the sea. How thoroughly do the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea, aren't they? The human person is such a centerpiece of God's plan. It's God's favorite way that his plan works out. God doesn't just poof things. God uses the agency of the human person. That's why you're so important. That's why respect for you is so important. That's why your respect for other people is so important. That's why the way in which you greet and you welcome people from San Jose who come to your church is so important. That's why they should have the first seat. That's why they should be the ones who are greeted. That's why you should never, ever, ever talk to your friend before you talk to a visitor at New Hope. Never, never. 
It's, there's no excuse for that. This is somebody who may be exiled, who may be far off, and, and they need to be welcomed with the welcome of Christ because Jesus never left you alone. We disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of other peoples. And so uh, Act 3 begins with hope. Act 3 begins with this promise. And the promise, very simply stated, is redemption will come. Now, it works its way out in a, in a long, long way. There's a long time between Genesis 3.15 and today. In fact, I can't tell you exactly how long that time is. Maybe Susan will tell you. <laughs> but there's a long time between here and there, and it's going to play out. But, but let's keep that in mind. Will the glory of God be made known in such a way? Will, will redemption come in its fullness? Will that happen? That's sort of part of the, the, the plot of this six-act play that we have. And so Act 3 begins with this magnificent promise, but it doesn't work its way out all the way in Act 3. Uh, if we look at what Paul says here in, in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13 and verse 17, he says that the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. Now, one of the main ways in which God was going to make his glory known in which redemption would come is, is he, he, he called Abraham, or Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and called him into the promised land and made this magnificent promise to him. And he made this promise to him that kings would come to him and ultimately redemption would come through him, that, that there would be more descendants of his than there are sands on the seashore, than there are stars in the sky. And he said that it would come through him and it was the most unlikely of person because Abraham was really old and Sarah, his wife, was really old. And I'd love to tell you all that story, but they, it begins with them, that, that this story will be made complete. And so Paul makes references makes reference to that as he's explaining who Jesus is in, in 17. Paul continues and he says, he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt and with a mighty power, he led them out of that country. Well, the people of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those were his descendants, those were his sons, and they're called Israel because Jacob's name got changed to Israel. And Jacob had 12 sons. You ever wonder what the, why the 12 tribes of Israel? Hopefully, maybe you all know that, but that was news to me. Why were there 12 tribes? Because, because Israel... Jacob was renamed Israel. Israel had 12 sons. And, and guess what? They get, off into, they get put into captivity in Egypt. But God, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, heard their cries. And I love Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy talks about why he saved them. Do you know why God saved the people of, uh, of, of Israel from the iron-smelting furnace of Egypt? Was it because they were the most mighty nation or the most handsome nation or the most learned nation? No. In Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 9, he says, it's because you were the runt. It's because I get to show my greatness because you were the runt. You weren't the prettiest people. You weren't the most numerous people. You weren't the smartest people. I just, you're just my people. And so by his grace and in his mercy, in the penultimate act of salvation, here's a, here's a people in exile, and God reaches in and he saves them, and he pulls them out, and he says, this is the way I roll. It should be a little bit of a, of a, a light should go on for us in terms of what is the nature of how salvation will come when God, makes, when God brings the ultimate salvation toward which he pointed might it be about grace? Is, God's, is the way God rolls about saving through grace? I think if you look at that, you'd say that it was. And Paul continues, and he says that he, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now, 
two things that God promised to Abraham when he called Abraham. He promised him his presence, God's presence, and he promised him a land. And isn't it interesting that God pulls them out of their their subjectivity in Egypt and he gives them himself. He travels with them. He, 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 He tabernacles with them. And he gives them this land. And, he t- and they talk about that. God gave, and then when they took the land, he says that God gave them judges until the time of Samuel. But the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul. Well, that's part of the history, and I'm getting long in the tooth here in a long way. But, but the, God never intended that they'd have a king like the other nations. There would be a king. There would be a redeemer king. It'd be a special kind of king who would come. But they wanted a king like the other nations, and... Unfortunately, in Saul, they got a king like the other nations. Kings in the other nations, you see. Kings like the kings of the other nations. Uh, they live for the king's business. They didn't, the kind of king that ultimately God had intended for them was a the kind of king who might die for the nation. But the kind of king that they got was a king who wanted the riches of the nation to him, and they got just what they asked for. But he removed him, Paul tells him. He removed him, and they gave him the king David. Now, David was a king after God's own heart. And, and probably the, the, the ultimate time in the history of Israel was about 1,000 years before Christ, 1,000 A.D. And there was peace in the land, and there was prosperity in the land, and the nations of the land came to Israel because Israel was thriving. The presence of God was with them. The people of God were, were generally obedient. The blessings of God were upon them. And that was the whole story, that they were to be blessed in order to be a blessing. Have you ever heard that in, in Genesis 12, that he blessed Abraham so that he might bless the world? See, the world was to see the way this God rolls and the way that people enjoy, the, 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 the joy and the security and the humility and the authenticity of the people, and they were to come and to worship that God with him. Does that sound familiar to something that I said earlier? Well, I hope it does. But unfortunately, David turned his back, and the people turned their back, and ultimately they ended up in exile. To be in exile is to be away from God. God removed his presence. In fact, the sin became so severe that God removed his presence from them. And then he removed them from the land. And they were captive to Assyria and then Babylonia. Uh, In uh, in 539 B.C., uh, under Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians, they went back into the promised land. They went back to to Jerusalem, to to the city of David. And yet they were always ruled over by a foreign oppressor. It was the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then, and then as we come to the time of Jesus, uh, to the Romans. And so Act 3 ends with Israel in exile. Uh, with a promise having been made, with efforts being made to, to live in the joy of this God and to spread his grace and his mercy to the ends of the earth, but utter failure. And, and so I don't know if your heads are spinning, I don't know if this has been in any way helpful to you. I don't know if you're starting to have some hooks on which to think about as you read the Old Testament. Just what act am I in? And how, what, is the, what is the point of this act? But that's my, my, my whole point here is that I want you to know your story. I want you to know the history of the scriptures is your story. If you belong to Jesus, this is your story. These are your kinfolk. These are your forefathers. And if you're to accept the mission that God has for you, 
And you need to understand where you've come from, and especially if you're about to take, a, you're about to take an act, right? You're about, to, you're about to take a part in Act 5 of this play. And so I hope we've, we've begun a little bit with Acts 1 and with Acts 2 and Acts 3 to begin to give you a sense. Act 3 ends kind of in a tough spot. And I don't necessarily want to end in a tough spot, but we sort of, sometimes we have to have Good Friday before Easter comes, don't we? And so there's a little bit in which I figured, okay, Friday, we can end Friday with sort of a Good Friday moment. But let me, let me say something about that before we, before we end. Um, by and large, people in Marin County don't go to church. Uh, about 2% of the population goes to a church of any kind. Probably the biggest uh, spiritual gathering is at a place called Spirit Rock uh, on Thursday nights. Um, there's very little in the way of churches, and, and uh, frankly, most of the people, I think, it's, it's an old uh, community. Um, I, I was telling Susan, I'm, I was so excited that there would be people under 40 uh, here. Uh, I don't preach to anybody under 40 unless they're a kid. And uh, so I love under 40s. In fact, Marin County is just, uh, is, um, there's a debt. There's, a, there's something missing by not having 20-somethings and 30-somethings. And it's basically just too stinking expensive and too boring to live there uh, for 20 and 30-somethings. One of the two is true of them. But anyway, people don't come to church unless there's a crisis. It's almost like this. When somebody new comes to church, hi, I'm Rod, I'm the pastor, what's your problem? <laughs> now, that's not very inviting, is it? So I don't say that. I don't want you to know I'm not that crass uh, in terms of saying that. But in the back of my mind, I'm wondering what the heck got them here because something must be wrong, right? Because uh, they, they wouldn't be here otherwise. And, and what I want to tell you is, is that there's nothing like this story to begin to change their heart. You see, this story is written on our hearts. We, we may not know it, but, you know, we cry at commercials when there's redemption in a 30-second commercial. Um, there are things that move us. And what I want to tell you is, is that if you're a human person, uh, no matter how much you've sinned, no matter how much you've, you don't recognize the lordship of Christ, you still bear the image of God. Your, your bad behavior, your, your rebellion against God is never enough at least until you die, to remove that image. And so we bear that image, and we, when there's something, we, I like to say we kind of know this story in our knower. It's deep down within us. And so when people come to me, and, and, uh, and usually, like I, I told Susong, I'm, I'm not a great preacher. Um, I hope I'm somewhat engaging to you. Uh, I'm better one-on-one, but when I get one-on-one, I tell the story. I ask them if they know the story. And there's something, there's something about the glory of creation that people just know that it just can't be an accident, that, there, that there, it's just possible that there's a God who, who made Mount Tamalpais. It's just possible that there's a God who, who gave us uh, the uh, San Francisco Bay. Just, just when you look at the beauty and the majesty, and, and when we see our kids, and when we see the talent and the people around us, we just know something really good is behind all this. We may not want to say it out loud, and it, we have so many things that keep us from saying that out loud, but, but people know it. And when I start to tell them the story, there's something that really, and, there, and people know that there's a purpose, that we're not accidents 
that we're not just flotsam and floating around and we just happen to pick something up and we like it, that there's, there's a purpose deep within us. And so I think, I think Act 1, really, people do relate to. They, they know that God did something grand, even if they won't recognize it. And they know, and they just know, they, they, can't, <laughs> they can't love somebody else and not know that there's something special and there's some, something that we're all called to. I'll tell you that people are really, really well in touch with the, with the stuff that has gone horribly wrong in the world. And Marin County actually is a place where people are really justice-minded. But that we, don't, we don't have an answer for justice, but we know injustice when we see it, and that's okay. Because there's been grave injustice. And, and the, the turn is uh, that God, it's a Holy Spirit thing. But if, if we can acknowledge the injustice of the world that that's, and, and pray that the Spirit will show us our own acts of injustice, that's when, that's when the hunger begins. And that's when we just, we just have so many ways in which we try to deny the fact that we're guilty too as righteous as we think we are. And I'll tell you that, that uh, this promise that God gives us in, Acts, in, in Act 3 of the grand story, the, the promise of redemption does live inside every one of us. It's really, I like to say, it's, it's the melody of the universe. Somehow, we just know when redemption begins that there, there's something that we connect with because we were made for redemption. My friends, that is, th- this This story is in all of us, and the more that we know it and the better that we can tell it, the more we can relate to our neighbors, the more that we can cry at the injustices that have been perpetrated against them, the the less we're going to keep sticking our our fingers in people's face and the more we're going to long with them. And they might long with us. And when they see the confidence of our longing and when they see the hope of our longing, they actually start to ask about Act 4 and Act 5 and Act 6. And that's what I want to talk about. Um, I, I, let me just end with two quick things. I tell this story all the time. And uh, maybe you say, boy, you're lousy at it. And I don't know why you do. But uh, I, I hope I'm not too lousy at it. But let me just say this. I think I, I have some very very precious memories of walking the roads of San Anselmo, that's a little town that I live in, and telling this story and seeing people move from darkness to light when they start to see that they're part of something bigger. Friends, is it just possible that we are part of a bigger story? Is, is it just possible that the, the God who spoke and the limitless galaxies left into existence is the God of the people of Abraham? And is it just possible that God blessed him so that he might bless the rest of us? That we might be invited into this grand story? Is it just possible that we're not just random and that God has a plan and is a story? It is. It is, my friends. You have something. See, there's something... There's something that you, don't, you know that sometimes uh, the person who doesn't know yet, doesn't yet know Jesus doesn't know. One of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride. I don't know if you've ever seen The Princess Bride. Do you quote The Princess Bride? I don't know. Um, but I love The Princess Bride. There's so many uh, stories of the gospel in The Princess Bride. But one of my favorite is when the, um, the Dread Pirate Roberts is about to have a sword fight with Indigo Matoya.
Now, Antigua Montoya is a Spaniard, and he um, and this six-fingered man had killed his father. I'm going way too long, and I'm going to finish right here. But the, the six-fingered man had killed his father. And, and so this, this Spaniard has made his life out of revenge. He wants to revenge the death of his father. And so every time he meets him, he says, hello, my name is Indigo Montoya. He said, or he, he says, this is what I'm going to say when I meet the six-fingered man. Yeah, uh, you killed my father, prepare to die. And so he makes his whole life out of, uh, his, whole, his whole mission in life is to prepare to kill the man who killed his father. And so he becomes like a magnificent, uh, what do you call swordsman? Um, marksman? That's not marksman shoots. What's that called? Fence, fence, that's not fencing. What's it called? Okay, marksman, we'll call, or fence, fencing guy. He becomes a wonderful sword fighter, all right? And, uh, and so uh, there's, this, there's this dread pirate, Roberts, who's chasing uh, Princess Buttercup, who Indigo Montoya and his buddies have, have, uh, have uh, uh, they've kidnapped her. And so uh, the Spaniard is left to fight off the dread pirate, Roberts, who is actually uh, the, princess bride, the princess's true love. And so he's coming after her. And anyway, so they have this magnificent sword fight. And as they begin, it's very interesting. As they begin, they're both fighting left-handed. Now, it's inter- you know, if, if you just sort of notice those things, I'm kind of athletic, and I notice those things, and, and the very first time I thought, I thought, how is it possible that these two guys are both lefties? It's, it's just odd. And so as they're fighting, they're, they're actually they're actually very impressed with one another. And, and it's kind of funny. They're having this dialogue, and they're actually fighting to the death, but they're complimenting each other on the techniques that they're using. And, uh, and then the, the Dread Pirate Robert says to, uh, to uh, the Spaniard, he says, I noticed that you're smiling. What's going on? And the Spaniard said, well, you're, you're beating me, but I know something that you don't. And he says, well, what's that? And he takes the, the sword from his left hand, he throws it into his right, and he says, I'm not left-handed. <laughs> and so the Spaniard starts to come, and he comes against the, the Dread Pirate Roberts, and he's defeating the Dread Pirate Roberts, and he's about to get the Dread Pirate Roberts, and the Dread Pirate Roberts is actually smiling as well. And he says, why are you smiling? He goes, I know something you don't know. <laughs> I'm not left-handed either. <laughs> and then the Dread Pirate Roberts defeats the Spaniard in, in that. Why do I tell that story? Friends, you know something that your neighbor doesn't know. You're not left-handed. I'm going to talk to you about Act 4 tomorrow. The promise that Jesus, the promise that God made in the garden gets kept. And so you actually can uh, live in authenticity when all hell breaks loose in your life, when you get fired, when, when when tragedy comes in your life or when tragedy comes in your neighbor's life, you can actually live in the authenticity of that but still know that there's hope, that redemption is sure. So I want to leave you with that. Is, is it possible that redemption's sure? Well, I'm going to talk to you about that in Act 4 tomorrow. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for... Uh, this magnificent story that you've given us. And uh, Lord, I pray that we would live in the joy and the sureness of your hope. And Lord, as we um, move toward Act 4 tomorrow morning, Lord, that you'd give us confidence that um, redemption will come. And in fact, we'll just, 
we'll just spoil the surprise. Redemption has come, and that's why we're here. Uh, Lord, thank you for bringing redemption and making us instruments of your redemption. And Lord, we do know something that our neighbor doesn't know. And that is that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth and that we belong to you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to rest in that and to be agents of that good news, that great news, wherever we go. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.